Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 20th, 2016. This is episode 1713 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. I have Rex Tibor of Rex Reviews on to talk about long-range shooting, a.k.a. sniping, though we won't really be just talking about it from the standpoint of being a military sniper, but truly the art of long-range shooting. If you are not a person generally into guns, I suggest you you tune in for this show anyway. You just might learn something about skill set, set development and philosophy here. And if you are a gun person, but generally you think of the long-range sniper training as just being just that, you know, military sniper-style training, I think there's a lot of value to long-range shooting, a lot more value than a lot of people really understand. I think it teaches you something psychologically. I think it teaches you something about limits and what they really are versus what you think they are. And I think the person that becomes a good long-range shooter becomes a better medium to short-range shooter as well. So hang on tight before I bring Rex on. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold, I go to jmbullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor of the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5 to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Sponsor of the day number two today is KnifeKits.com. I really like the entire concept that is KnifeKits.com. I just love it because when I start thinking about learning how to make a knife, I start thinking about, okay, 
I have to start out with this raw piece of metal. I have to beat it in a forge and make it the right thickness or grind it or cut it or all this type of thing. And that's fine. And I think it's where a lot of knife makers want to be able to get to, you know, go and buying an old file for a quarter or something at the flea market turning into an awesome knife. I've seen people do things like that. But with knife kits, you can focus on the final fit and finish of the handle material, making something custom and unique. And you don't have to learn everything at one time. You can learn that final part. Uh, or you can actually do your own uh, shaping, cutting, whatever. You can find raw stock material. It's up to you what you want to do. But for a lot of people, I think just getting a kit in the, the, the frame style that they're looking for, choosing their own handle material, finishing themselves, building a sheath for it either out of leather or kydex or any of the other materials that are there, and being able to work with some really cool exotic materials and make something really unique, and being able to get to kind of a starting point first helps them with that pathway down to that skill set development. I'm huge on skill set development, guys. It's one of the biggest, most important things to me in the world. This nation is rapidly devolving into a nation with no hard skills. We need to reinstill hard skills, and making a knife is one way to do that. There's also some other cool stuff there, like making Kydex holsters and things like that. Great project for you to do with your kids. Hey, you guys with scouting groups, what about doing a, a scouting uh, project where every scout makes a knife? It's affordable, and if you need help with what to do, they have books and videos to help you through the entire process. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1713, because the episode is 1713. I have the literary play of the American Revolution. 1713? Yeah, hold on. And then I have the X Prize for Longitude. I'm going to read the literary play of the American Revolution, because it gives you an insight to the type of things that our founders were thinking that you may not be familiar with. George Washington is not yet born. I mean, after all, it is 1713. But the British play that debuts this year will become central to the American Revolution. It's called Cato, a Tragedy, pronounced Cato. The play portrays the famous Roman Senator Cato, the younger, in his dramatic opposition to the tyranny of Julius Caesar. It is a wildly successful play on stage, but it has a second quality. Before there was television, people would gather in parlors and read plays. Each person would be assigned a part. Some would read their part while sitting, others would stand, but the focus was on the words, not the performance. The play has great words, and people will be reading these words well into the 1770s, including Patrick Henry, who will paraphrase a line from the play as he shouts, Give me liberty or give me death. And Nathan Hale will remember this play as he declares, I re only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. And in 1778, George Washington will have his troops perform this play at Valley Forge to build up their morale, and it will become an inspiration for the American Revolution. Now, my take by Alex shrugged on this. As a young man, General George, Wash or General George Washington's favorite character in the play was Juba, who loved Cato's daughter, Marcia. Washington could read Juba's lines to the young ladies, such as the lovely Sally Carey, but some of the quotes from Juba sound like the mission statement for the building of a nation. Here's a quote from the play. This is Cato, a tragedy, Juba, Act 1, Scene 4. A Roman soul is bent on higher views to civilize the rude, unpolished world and lay it under the restraint of laws to make man mild and sociable to man, to cultivate the wild, lascivious savage with wisdom, discipline, and liberal arts. 
The embellishments of life, virtues like these make human nature shine, reform the soul, and break our fierce barbarians into men. Ah, I don't like that. My take by Jack Spirico, I don't like that. This is about dewilding man. This is about the domestication of human beings. This is about taking human beings who know true freedom, who interact with their environment, that are seen as wild and savage by those that would prefer that they be subjects or citizens. And a citizen and a subject are not that different in the minds of those who rule. Not to me. You know, it's a fact of history as well, much more recent history. And I don't remember what American generals said it during the Indian Wars, but it was after wiping out a group of Native Americans with regret, even though he had just been the one to wipe them out, that never had a people ever lived that had known such freedom. I don't remember what general or colonel that was, but if anybody does, I'd like a reference. I was unable to find it looking it up. I, I heard it recently in a documentary, though, and I wasn't really paying attention to it, but it resonated with me. And I think there's something to that. When we look at what the goal of government really has become, it is to civilize the rude, unpolished world and lay it under the restraint of laws. A belief that human beings cannot exist in a proactive way without control by masters. Here's the thing about that. Those of you that still struggle with this, I'd just like you to consider this. The belief that one needs government because people can't behave well, can't do proactive things, etc., unless they are coerced with power, means that people are just simply not capable of doing it. But the same people not capable of doing it are then given power over others to make them do it. Really let that sink in. Let it sink in deep. My take by Jack Spirico. And may we someday again know true freedom in this world. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, I'd really like you to consider joining if you're not a member yet. It is how we pay the bills around here. It's how we are able to do this show for you five days a week. It's how we're able to bring you the call-in shows, the great guests, the expert counsel, all the stuff we do. And, hey, you'll get discounts on stuff you're probably buying anyway. We have a whole bunch of seed discounts. Probably a lot of you right now are thinking about planting spring gardens and getting your trees for spring planting and stuff like that. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all trees. That can pay for your membership right there alone uh, for a full year. And we have like 67 or 70 discounters now. I just added two more really great ones, Fishing Yoyito, which is a really cool survival fishing kit uh, with a great discount on that, and uh, the Tool Merchants with some really great gardening tools, stuff you just can't find just anywhere, really competitive price, high-quality stuff, You know, certain tools that you can get out of Japan, out of Sweden, some right here in the United States, an amazing grubbing hoe, great stuff with a good discount. So if, if you're going to be spending money anyway, and I can get you discounts, And then you can help support this show and basically get your money back over the year. Doesn't it make sense to join? And hey, if you're like, I don't have 50 bucks right now, do you know you can join for $5 a month? $5 a month or $50 a year. The choice is yours. If you are active duty or prior service, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responder like EMT, paramedic, firefighter, you all qualify for a discount. Email me with TSPX, or sorry, TSP, TSPC discount in the subject line and I will get back to you with the discount code. All right, with that, I want to say, hey, Rex, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. 
hey, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you guys. Hey, Rex, you, you've got an awesome YouTube channel. It really is. A lot of variety, a lot of stuff on guns, a lot of other things that are pretty cool. Um, before we kind of get into things, though, can you tell people a little bit about your channel, why you started it, and who you are, just so the audience, the members that haven't you know, met you before, know who you are? Okay. Well, um, I'm and I had a channel on YouTube there called Tiborosaurus Rex, like the dinosaur, and uh, a little bit modified, I guess. And uh, the channel really started off kind of as a hobby, I suppose, maybe five years ago, and I was kind of putting some of my music video stuff on there. And uh, I do like videography, and I thought that was fun as well, so I started uploading just some fun range videos, and that uh, had a good response, so I started uploading more of that. And I hadn't realized, uh, because I am also kind of into, I know, the art of long-range shooting, I started uploading some videos uh, with long-range shooting, and a lot of folks really were responsive to that, and I had a lot of questions, so many questions I couldn't even uh, really keep track or keep up to speed on answering them. So I figured I would maybe uh, get a tutorial series put together that was originally going to be a pretty brief series, like maybe uh, only 10 parts long. I'm kind of covering long-range shooting and stuff. And uh, what happened was, uh, I don't know, maybe I just got a little too detail-oriented, but I got into it more than I thought I did, and the response was real positive. So it just kind of took off from there, and it became kind of a kind of a new thing for me, I guess, is just doing the long-range tutorials. Yeah, no, we, we do a lot of other videos, too. We do uh, political commentaries once in a while. I'll have a rant, or uh, we'll discuss, like, biblical topics and just stuff that's interesting to me that I enjoy talking about. And uh, um, we try to keep it positive and clean as much as we can uh, so that, you know, family-oriented folks can get into it as well. And uh, it's been uh, real positive so far. But that's cool, and I think as far as rants, there's there's plenty to rant about, but it, it does make sense to stay more on to positive topics. Um, kind of as, as we get into this today, though, um, you do you did mention, like, you know, rock music and stuff like that. I've heard people say, like, you're like a, a clone of, of Ted Nugent or something like that. Are you related to Ted or anything? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's pretty funny, uh I am a blood brother to Ted Nugent. Uh, if you look at his criteria that he uh, wrote in his books, he says that anyone who agrees with the the principles that he has of just uh, living clean and uh, being fired up about liberty and stuff like that, then you're his blood brother. So, yes, I am uh, <laughs> practically a clone of Ted <laughs> well, cool. Let, let's and I do like the rock and roll guitar too. Yes. Yeah, I, me too. I, I don't know how old you are. I'm in in my my mid forties, and I, I remember music from the seventies and the eighties before a lot of things just seemed to go away. Back when they actually wrote songs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When people wrote songs, and, I don't know. Have you ever? This is totally off topic, but have you ever seen this thing? This guy, this guy that calls himself Sir Mix a Lot, did or Sir Mashup or something like that. And he took, like, from a couple of years ago, like, ten country songs that all made number one and took pieces of them and merged them into a single song. And he ran six yep. guitar <laughs> solos at one time, and it flipping worked to prove how cookie-cutter the Indistinguishable. I was like, I, I cannot believe – you know, I could, but yet it was so beyond as bad as I thought it was. I was like, my God. This is what you know music in America's come into. Well, there's only seven major chords, and they're usually arranged in groups of three, I suppose. So yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of overlap. 
So anyway, let, let's get into the topic of long-range shooting. What, what is it that you enjoy most about it? Because I know even some gun people kind of put that on the shelf as, well, that's sniper training, and I'm never going to be sniping. And I, I don't see you know long-range shooting and sniping as different, but I also don't see them 100% as the same thing either. I see long-range shooting as a discipline. That's correct. Yeah, long-range shooting, is, is it's a discipline uh, that requires a lot of attention to detail. And you really have to have a refined discipline to get through it because there's a lot of little tiny things that you got to all have kind of balanced out and you got to maintain peripheral awareness and you got to be alert in order to be kind of successful at it. Even for those of us who are more experienced in it, it's difficult um, in some ways, uh, you know, to, and to tell the truth, it, it depends on uh, what the application is, I suppose, and how far you're going to shoot. For some folks, long range might be, you know, over 300 yards. For some folks, long range might be over a thousand. Um, and up here in the, the Great Plains, you know, long range is more. Uh, you can see forever up here. So if you want to be able to, if you're a hunter or a sportsman, um, it's good to have that skill set nailed down. And uh, but the thing I enjoy about it, I suppose, is it's uh, it's applied science. And I, I'm a science guy. I like engineering. I like math. Right. Well, I don't know if I enjoy just sitting down doing normal math problems. But seeing how it's applied to real-world physics is just really interesting. So that's where the hobby part of it comes in. Uh, for me, anymore, it's just a hobby. Um, and, of course, it has side benefits of, uh, you know, knowing how to use whatever piece of equipment you have and unlocking the full potential of any kind of uh, toy you might have or any piece of equipment or any tool, in this case, uh, you know, a firearm, a rifle, uh, I think is, is, it's good to just understand its capabilities and uh, the more you can understand how to use it, uh, the better, really. One of the things I'd add to that is I, I think people kind of overlook the what I consider the obvious. If you become skilled at taking 800 to 1,000 yard shots or even further, where you it, it may be not the guy that can go shoot in the World Cup and win or anything, but just you can consistently hit reasonable targets at that distance for that distance. And then you translate that back to if you're a hunter that generally ends up taking one to two hundred yard shots, are you not going to be a better shot at those those let's say conventional ranges than if you don't have that skill set developed out of those longer ranges? Don't don't you think that improves your overall marksmanship no matter what range you're shooting at? Absolutely, you know when you're talking about re really refining your your uh, skill level. Um, in real life, what happens is, you know, when, you, when you're out playing in the field by yourself just for fun, uh, you might have a certain skill level acquired. But when you get excited, like, for example, in a situation where you might be hunting something and uh, you got a critter that's trying to get away from you and you got buck fever going on, or even in a worst-case scenario, if you uh, are using it for a life-and-death type situation, God forbid, uh, all of a sudden your skill set goes, like, way down. And even with hunting, I would say that most what most most folks can do with a standard setup or their rifle or how good they can shoot on the range, they're only going to have a quarter of that level when they actually are out in the field and they get a little bit of adrenaline. You know how adrenaline works? It takes mm -hmm. all your it takes all your skill away. You lose all your fine motor skills. You get excited. You get really stupid all of a sudden, and uh, you forget a lot of stuff. So it's good. Uh, with a piece of equipment that's going to be used, especially what a rifle was designed for, which is for taking game or for defense applications or uh, things like that. Um, it's very, very important, in my opinion, to way overshoot your skill level because if you ever should need to use it um, to take meat or whatever you got to do, uh, you're going to only be operating 
at a fraction of your normal skill level. So if you can master the, the concepts, really, and it's real, most of it's conceptual, um, just understanding the general concepts of what, how the, the bullet's going to be affected by different factors is going to really help you problem solve, too, in the field. A lot of times people will miss and they won't know why, and, they, and they'll be uh, barking up the wrong tree or uh, chasing their tails trying to fix the wrong thing, and they're actually making the situation work, uh, worse. So just understanding the general concepts associated with like external ballistics and how internal ballistics affect everything and, the, you know, all the different factors involved, understanding those fundamentally, having that really, really understood is going to help you to problem solve and troubleshoot your own failures when, because it's going to, you're going to miss and you're going to want to know why and you don't want to have to shoot 500 times to figure it out. You should just be able to kind of intuitively know if you're well familiar with all the different details. Yeah, and I mean, I think another thing I would add to that that's going to sound totally off topic to bring it back is the four-minute mile, right? So when there was nobody that had ever run a four-minute mile, people had this mental roadblock to what was possible. And then somebody did it, and then like a dozen more people did it in the next 90 days. And I think we right, can do that yep. for ourselves, right? So like for analogy for me, at much less distances than we're talking about today, but you're talking 300 meters uh, for U.S. Army qualification uh, with an M16. And when I was in, there was none of these red dot sights and stuff like that. You use standard iron sights, standard M16. We were actually shooting A1s left over from Vietnam era when I was in. And when they told us we were going to be shooting at basically a half-man-sized target at 300 meters with iron sights, and I'm a guy that grew up deer hunting, and, and you, yep. you put a scoped rifle in my hand, I will put a deer's eyeball out at 150 yards offhand. And I was like... There's no, I can't, and I have like one eye I'm blind in, right? So I drill some, I'm closing that eye because I'm blind in a drill sergeant. Carry on, right? I mean, so I'm blind in one eye. I don't have the best vision in the other, and I'm going to shoot 300 meters. And then once they taught us what to do, I couldn't, I actually can't see that target at that range. I can see it move when it pops up. And then I know where it is. Yeah, 300 yards is a lot farther than most folks uh, figure, actually. A lot of times when someone tells you, I shot something at 300 yards, what they really mean is like 90 yards. Yeah, yeah. But then you see <laughs> that. If they were to pace it off, yeah. But what I'm saying is you learn the technique right, and then you see the t – I can see the movement. So you see the target pop up. You do exactly what you're supposed to pull the trigger, and then you see the movement of the target drop down. Even though you couldn't see what you shot, or most people can see that far, I can't. And I was like, at that point – the concept of, of a 300-yard shot with a scope 306 being a long shot went away. It, it, it became yep. <laughs> routine. And I think the same thing happens when you start moving you know, gongs out to 800 to you know, 1,000 or, or more meters. You start to realize right. that it's not that hard if you do your job. That's correct, yep. Like anything else, yep. So what personal qualities are needed to be successful at long-range precision shooting? I think uh, probably the, the biggest one is you have to be ready to learn because there's a, so many misconceptions, generally speaking, just in the shooting world that a lot of folks maybe, uh, you know, uh, aren't. If you already know everything, you can't learn anything. And that's been my experience. And that's why a lot of chicks actually do a, a way better job learning than some dudes do at times because uh, they, they recognize the fact that, hey, I need to learn this skill set and, uh, and they're listening. And so you got to have attention to detail. You, you got to be open-minded to look, to learn new things. And uh, the other deal is like, it really requires a great amount of patience because it's uh, there, there's some of these concepts are maybe simple 
in, in concept, but when you get down to the details and working out the math and learning how to interpolate, and, and there's a lot of new terminology and there's a whole language to long range shooting. So there is actually a lot to learn there. And, um, it just requires uh, the ability, what, what's this, uh, the kind of newer generation struggles with that. They have a 10-second attention span. Mm. And so don't, don't expect to learn it overnight. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of shooting. You just got to get out there and you got to apply what you learn. And, and you can't learn this stuff in books either. I tell this to people too. And uh, my, my tutorials are really just a supplemental program of instruction that's there to kind of give people the general knowledge tools of what's going on so they can actually go out and refine those in real life. But that's only a small fraction of what it really takes. You got to get out there in the field and you got to, you got to get dirty and you got to shoot a lot in order to really figure it out and nail it down and uh, learn all the idiosyncrasies of how these things are interrelated, you know? Yeah, I do. And I think kind of like the way I put it is, you know, we do a lot of diversity on the show. We talk about everything from guns to planting trees for self-sufficiency. And you can read in a book that a certain tree will flower on a, in a certain month and that needs another tree to pollinate it and whatever. And that's a starting point. But then right. trees don't read books and neither do bullets, right? Bullets <laughs> don't read books. All of these, like, there's calculators and stuff like that. And all of these things are really a starting point. There has to be a certain amount of intuition and the conditions yep. change and you can do a calculation for one temperature and it can be five degrees cooler or warmer. And, and you know, you can't always take a temperature reading and, and run your calculator. Right. You're doing these things. And so you have to marry up a starting point of basic mathematical understanding with intuition. An experience base. Yeah. Yep. And I, I think a lot of people like, I, I talk to people like, Oh, I'm a good shot or whatever. And I'm like, but you don't understand when you do this, there's so many things you can mess up beyond being a good shot. So you can hold the rifle perfect. You can do the perfect squeeze. You can do everything mechanically yep. with the shot right. But when you're taking a shot, it's a thousand yards out. If you've made an improper calculation, all you're going to do is put the bullet exactly where it's supposed to go, which ain't where you aimed. Right, <laughs> so. exactly. I think, you know, honestly, the easiest part of long range shooting is actually the shooting part. Yeah, uh, you lay down if you've got good artificial support or whatever you're using to get steady. Uh, there's just a couple little tricks. You lay behind the rifle correctly and you practice your, uh, you know, four fundamentals of marksmanship. That part's not hard. Uh, that you can teach to someone basically in five minutes, in all honesty. Um, but uh, the hard part is getting everything indexed correctly on your scope. And when you're dialing and firing solution, there's a lot of that's that's the hard part. And there's a lot involved there because, like you said, uh, conditions change all the time. Great. I want to talk more about some gear stuff, but before we do, I wanted to ask you a question. You said that you promote old school values through your channel. What do you consider to be old school values? Oh man, that's a that's a good question. I suppose just like it was, uh, like I remember when I was a kid. And I, I was uh, raised in rural America up here, a very small town. And uh, my folks had their heads screwed on pretty straight. And I think that um, uh, basically the opposite of what you see in, in the pop culture today, which is not constructive. Hmm. Um, old school values, I suppose, would just be based on good, good morals, you know, like uh, good old biblical principles. I think are a good template, a good operating system for homo sapien to operate on to where we all coexist you know, on a, on a equal plane and, and get along with each other and help each other out. Because as an organism, you know, all of mankind, I think, is a lot stronger when we all kind of help each other out and practice the two golden rules, you know. 
love the man upstairs uh, more than anything and love, uh, love your brother like you love yourself. And if everyone on planet Earth did that, you would have zero problems ever. So that's kind of the golden rule, I guess. But <laughs> That's good because I, I think our youth is craving something they don't even know they're missing. They don't know why they're screwed up. Right, they don't understand. Yeah, they're, they're searching for it in all the wrong places. Well, and that's another thing too. I would really stress too, being that we're on the point is like with the long range shooting skill set or any of this tactical stuff. I see a lot of folks who get really worked up about shooting, and uh, you know, it can make a guy feel tough, I suppose. But anyone who's ever maybe done that kind of work in real life, maybe you can attest to it. And I know a lot of folks who can, and uh, we've all been in certain scenarios. Probably, it's not fun to get in a fight. And that's not something we should look forward to or want to do. And honestly, in, in in a survival situation, what would be the point to survive if you didn't have those two basic pieces of gold figured out already? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. like, you got to have something to survive for. What's the point of surviving if you don't got nothing going for it? If you're just a self-serving type guy and you're going to be miserable for the rest of existence and you're going to pass that on. I mean, we should really strive first to actually become something that would, uh, be beneficial to everyone else, which is a, a good person, first and foremost. Then you have something worth protecting and trying to survive for, you know? Well, I think a key thing here, we used the word a couple times talking about uh, long-range shooting being a discipline. The key word is discipline, and I think that's a word that's largely misunderstood today because when I'll talk to somebody today, especially a younger parent, I'm a grandfather now, you know, and I'll talk about discipline my smoke. child when he was young. They don't even understand what I'm talking about, and what I'll eventually have to explain to these young parents that just don't get it. The only reason you apply discipline to your children is so that they can learn to apply it to themselves. And I think when you give someone a challenge like ringing that gong at a thousand yards or going to a martial arts class or any of these things that require dedication and you don't just get, exactly the gong won't ring because your feelings are hurt. Right. And and, 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 <laughs> and the sensei in the martial arts class will not give you your next belt because you tried hard. <laughs> right. And I think that like, yeah. when you actually put kids into positions where they're able to succeed or fail, they decide that failing sucks and they'd like to succeed, so they apply effort, and then they learn to discipline themselves. Because we think of discipline in society today like some redneck that beats his kid with a belt. You, you pull out your kid and start beating him with a belt like a senseless idiot in front of me, I'll beat your ass with that belt. I'm not, I'm not talking right. about that. I'm talking about training up children to be good young men and women. And I think that the, the left lost its mind because this type of thing is the thing that leads to fine upstanding people and it's never the kids that go through these types of training that go out and take out half a high school. They don't do this. Absolutely. Yep. You're you're 100. You put it so perfectly. I couldn't say any better myself. Yep. Well, we're kind of off the traffic topic a little bit, but I think it's it, it's important that we're grounded in that because I do want to talk a little bit about gear. Um, okay. If somebody wants to get into just becoming a better marksman and extending that range out there, kind of what's like an an entry-level platform, because not everybody's going to go out and buy, like, a custom-made, you know, uh, precision rifle that costs $5,000 or uh, something you, like that. You cornered me on a controversial question. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is just between you and me. I don't know if anyone else is listening, but this is a secret <laughs> deal. But uh, honestly, whatever someone probably has in their closet right now as far as a centerfire rifle, I don't care what that thing is. If it's mechanically sound, like it's not been, doesn't have a bent barrel, the crown ain't messed up, and it's the, the screws are all tight on it. And if you have a half decent optic, uh, you can 
you'd be amazed what that thing will do. Uh, like uh, my $250 Remington, uh, you know, 40-year-old Remington that I got used from my old man and just a standard, you know, 7-millimeter, uh, that thing will push 1,400 meters, no problem. It'll actually do almost, for all practical purposes, it'll do everything my $10,000 rifle does. Uh, you know, if you have the right optic, that's kind of the limitation. Usually is a lot of people concentrate so much on the actual rifle. And you can make any rifle shoot plenty good enough to, to do what you're doing. It's really the limitation has been in the optics in my experience when you talk about long range because you have to apply a lot of uh, holdover, and you do that in the scope. That's done through the elevation turrets usually. Or if you're going to hold over, there's other systems where you have a reticle where you can hold over a, a value, but there's no, there's no Kentucky windage when you're talking about beyond a certain range, beyond 600 meters, and the whole game changes. Mm. You can sort of get away with just holding off, you know, up to five, 600, and, uh, but when you get beyond that, if you actually want to make a first-round hit, that's one of the, the criteria for this conversation, I suppose. If you want to make that first-round hit, you got to apply an exact amount of holdover. So you either need to do it through the turrets or the reticle. And uh, that's where you have to spend maybe a little more money. And uh, you can get into a, a scope that will work for maybe around $200, but you have to be very, very, very selective, and you have to know exactly which optic is going to work for you. Or, you know, if you get 500 bucks, you can start to get into a, a, an actual decent piece of equipment that'll serve you well for life. And if you're a schnob like me who likes really nice stuff, then you can spend like $4,000 on the scope, whatever, okay. you know, German glass. Uh, but, you know, honestly, just whatever rifle you have in your closet right now, use the correct bullets for whatever twist is in that rifle, obviously, and uh, mount like maybe a $300 SWFA uh, Super Sniper scope. They call it kind of stupid name, Super Sniper, you know, kind of a cartoonish name. Uh, but uh, that's a really good optic, and they're like 299 bucks. And you get that, and you get the proper, you know, peripheral equipment, like specifically your, your uh, ballistic drop tables. You don't need cell phone programs. In fact, I don't really, I'm not a big fan of the cell phone ballistic programs for obvious reasons, maybe not so obvious to some folks, but you want some kind of ballistic table uh, that's maybe on paper, and that's your basic system, and you, you can do a lot with that right there. You can pretty much do anything you need to. Do you, you mentioned optics. Do you have any specific brands that you would say is a starting point? I know you can't just say, well, get this model because different applications, different calibers, different sure. rifles, different budgets, but like some, some some places where like if you're at the entry to the mid-level, some manufacturers that are good in the, in that in that world. Sure. I suppose, you know, any conversation like you just hinted at there, it has to be defined by the selection criteria. So you got, I got to ask the question, what would be the specific application? Because if you're hunting varmints or if you're shooting very small targets, if you're doing F-class competition, long-distance shooting, uh, or if you're using it for potential tactical applications, it's a totally different set of uh, selection criteria. Um, so w which one do you want to play with first? Let, let's start out with hunting. Let's say the guy that, that wants to be able to extend his range on, on mule deer and elk beyond 600 yards. Okay. okay. Uh, well, if he doesn't anticipate, um, be, you know, if you're up in the woods, you don't want to get too much magnification. But if you want on the lower end of the budget, that's what we're talking about still, right? Low budget. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I would probably not go a lot, and a lot of people might be shocked at this, over a 10 power scope. Um, if you spend your money on a fixed power optic, that's just one magnification, no no variable uh, magnification. Um, 
you get a lot more for your money because there's way less money spent on all the intricate mechanics of the erector assembly and the scope. Uh, and actually, you have a lot more rugged of a scope that way, too. So fixed power scopes, I'm a big fan of them, especially for low budget. If you got, like, in all honesty, in all honesty, for most applications, unless you got a thousand bucks, you're not going to really get the, the level of performance you might desire out of a variable scope. Maybe 800 bucks, you can start and get in a decent variable that's going to be rugged enough for a mountain rifle or, you know, something like if you're going to climb a mountain 14 miles or whatever over the mountain and through the woods, uh, you're not going to want your scope to screw up on you. So I would prefer ruggedness in that application as well. I would say a fixed power optic, probably 10 power, maybe a little less even. And uh, you can hit uh, an elk size target beyond a thousand meters with a six or an eight or a 10 power scope. No Agreed. problem. Agreed. A hundred percent agree. Yep. And I'm a guy that doesn't see well. Mistake, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, we uploaded a video maybe last year or two years ago shooting the M91 Mosin Nagat. I don't know. Uh, maybe people pronounce that differently. I don't know. But uh, And we're just shooting with iron sights using 7N1 ammo at 944 yards and just nailing it. You know, I think we missed once in five shots. And uh, so you don't need, like, a lot of magnification to shoot a 1,000 yards at a large target. Now, if you're shooting at a Coke bottle or something, now you got a whole different ballgame Yeah, let's ball move down to the guy that wants to, like, go out and waste prairie dogs at 800 meters because, well, it's fun to watch prairie dogs explode at 800 meters. Right. Well, uh, something like that, um, a varmint scope is, you know, 16 power might actually be warranted in those cases. 10 power... 800 meters, the crosshair starts to cover up your prairie dog mm-hmm. or your can or whatever you're shooting at little targets. So that's where you're high magnification. That's really, honestly, the only application where I can see warranted a real high magnification. And what I consider to be real high is anything over like 14, 15 power, in my opinion. Um, so in, even when I'm shooting at like Coke bottles or beer cans or whatever I'm shooting at at extreme range, and we do that all the time just because it's a challenge and it's a lot of fun. I don't think on my Schmidt and Bender PM2 that I ever cranked that thing above 15 power when I ever made a shot, even on targets that small at like 1,200 yards. So, uh, like these guys get these 24 power scopes and they have an application in doubling as maybe a spotting scope and helping to identify a target or something. So that's fine. And I have scopes that are like 25 power, but I use that for spotting purposes, you know. Mm-hmm. But when you're actually shooting, you're not ever going to really use anything over 16 power. And there's a lot of other factors that come into play there, too. If you have too much magnification, you lose sight of your uh, bullet path because a lot of guys like to spot. If you, if you don't have a, the privilege of a spotter, you're going to be spotting your own rounds. You're going to be observing the bullet trace go through its trajectory. And when that bullet gets up into its max ordinate, especially when you have a little bit of recoil, it's going to wiggle you enough that if you have a limited field of view, you're going to totally not see where you're hitting because mm-hmm. you want to be able to track your own bullets. So a lower magnification, as low magnification as you can get away with, is actually the preferred way, I think, because the trade-off of having that field of view is good. So for uh, varmint shooting, you know, maybe something like on the order of 16 power would be fine. Okay. And a variable scope for varmint applications ain't nothing. I, if you miss a prairie dog, there's no tears shed. If you miss a big bull elk, people might be more grumpy. Yeah. If it's tactical applications, now you have to have something that works good. Yeah. You can get away with that. There's some scopes made by Hawk. And, uh, oh, man, there's a bunch. Of, I have uh, my reviews on uh, Sniper 101 series. It's called on YouTube. 
And uh, it, it goes through a whole selection criteria and a whole list of scopes for different applications. But that's where you can get away with really shooting a, a lower quality variable power scope. You can get into stuff for three hundred fifty dollars uh, with the correctly, you know, built the turret assembly, and um, to work fine there. But the thing to think about once you go variable power, there's a lot more stuff that you have to be worried about and you, and you have to be aware of especially if you're using your reticle at the same time for wind hold-offs or, uh, or correction values, you need to have, in my opinion, a first focal plane reticle. That's, like, super important for long-range shooting. Explain so that. I know off, exactly what you're talking about, but please explain that. Okay. Uh, if you have a reticle on your scope on a standard American-style sporting optic, when you crank up your magnification, uh, your, your reticle stays the same as far as what you see, but you're zooming in past that reticle and target. So proportionally, if you have a duplex or if you have a, a BDC compensating reticle with the little uh, lines that kind of show you your drops and stuff like that, your drop values to hold. If you have a second focal plane standard American sporting optic and you mess around with your, uh, your uh, zoom, what happens is it's not proportional to that target anymore. It's set for like a certain magnification range, and people don't understand that. And I've even seen real experience like Navy and Army shooters who got their personal rifle, and uh, they got like a Leopold Mark IV, but they forgot to get the first focal plane model. Now, the first focal plane, that reticle is going to stay proportional to your target. It's just talking that's optics language in which focal plane the reticle is placed in. But if it's in the first focal plane, uh, what happens is your reticle, no matter what magnification setting you have, that reticle is always going to be in them uh, same angular denominations. Whatever, If you have um, milliradian hash marks, mil dots, or bit of angle hash marks or holdover values, all that stuff, now you can actually use your variable powers and it's not going to mess with that. So that's like super important. To yeah. remember, if you're going variable, it gets a little more complicated. Yeah, to, to kind of like drive that home for people that are not familiar with all this technology, I think most people listening to this would at least know what a duplex reticle is. And if you don't, part of the reticle is thick and it comes down to a point and then the reticle gets fine. And right where the crosshairs come across and you put on the target, those crosshairs are really fine. And there's a step down, like a little arrow point there. When I was a kid, I had this mm -hmm. Marlin 22. Uh, that I zeroed at 25 yards and it's good out to about 50. And at 100 yards, with this old weaver with a duplex reticle, if you took the point of that triangle and put it on the target, it was still dead on. It wasn't designed to do that. It just worked out that way. But it was yep. a 1 to 5 power scope. And it did that at about 2 power. If you jacked it up to 5 power, that did not hold true anymore. And that's that's what you're talking yep. about there. And I think yeah, the important. second you have a variable power scope, everything has to be mechanically aligned so perfect, even if you're so good that you remember to have your power setting at the right setting to not screw up your uh, proportionality of your reticle on the target. Uh, even if you're so good as to do that, just the, the mechanics of zooming in, uh, that erector assembly, you got lenses moving around, and that stuff, if it changes like a hair's width, it throws you off. So... For, for especially for varmint shooting, uh, you know, I would recommend for most of those applications, I am really a fan of fixed power optics unless you got a lot of money to ensure mm. that the variable is done correctly. And on your comments of, like, you know, not so high power, I think another thing people lose there is, one, is field of view. And if you're you're taking closer shots as well, you, you can't see as well. You've got too narrow a field of view. But the other thing yeah. is magnification magnifies everything including you. 
And what I mean by that is every little shake, every little tremor, every little thing that you do and for a person, it can psych you out. It can psych you out, exactly. <laughs> it looks like the crunchers are just going everywhere and they you know they're moving and, and they are. I mean, it may, and some would argue that that would be advantageous because it would uh, force you to kind of refine your technique better, so it'll yeah. it'll reveal more. But I understand it can totally psych you out and cause you not to even take a shot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it'll. I mean, I'm thinking of new shooters, and you have them shooting a hundred yards, and and they they've brought this you know 12x scope that they thought was going to help them see the world at the other side of the planet or something, and right, it freaks them out because. Their movement is magnified twelvefold, just like the, the the view is magnified twelvefold. So yeah, I, I'm I'm right. a big fan of you know when when people ask me like what scope should I put on a twenty two you know twenty two long rifle? Fixed four power, just it'll do anything you would ever yeah. do. That rifle's not. I've, I'm sure you've done this too. We've played with twenty twos out to two hundred, three hundred yards with Kentucky windage. And stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. But it's not meant for that. Come on, this is a hundred yard round, you know, and and a, and a four power scope right. do everything. So. All, Way more than plenty. Yep. Yeah. So all you're doing is overkill at that point. So you know, I, I'm glad to hear you recommend fixed powers wherever they work because I'm totally with you. It's it's every elim- moving part you eliminate from a piece of machinery increases its reliability in general. Well, yeah, and also too, if you got a like a low budget optic, and I'm talking like under maybe, and I don't mean to be mean here, but maybe under five hundred dollars or under eight hundred dollars, you know. Um, <laughs> What happens when you zoom in on, if you have high magnification, just zoom in on a crappy image because your glass quality has, like, limitations. And so you're just zooming in on something that's blurry. So you're actually not seeing anything any better. You're just seeing the blurry stuff more closely. So if you want to have, in my opinion, the the limit is really 10 power. Most of your modern glass is plenty good to get everything you can see. You know, if you can't see it at 10 power, uh, you know what I mean, That that's pretty much the cap unless – you have to get into high definition or uh, high density glass, rather. Some people call it high definition. Some different marketers market it that way. HD glass actually is high density, but and uh, that will get you a lot better image quality. And now you're not zooming in on what they call an optical aberration, that blurriness. Uh, so, but that's gonna that's a lot of money. That's in the thousands of dollar range. You know, that's when you get in your European high end glass. Uh, so if you want to have a, a a variable scope with high magnification capabilities and you want the thing to actually be beneficial and help you, you got to spend a lot of money on them things. So and getting we, like a $109, uh, you know, uh, 6 to 24 power scope is pretty <laughs> much useless beyond 10 power. Yeah. It's just blurry, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. And when we say low budget, I mean, we also have to take that in context. We're talking about extreme long-range shooting here. Uh, there's a lot yeah. of good mid-grade hunting scopes that are a couple hundred bucks. I have a totally different category. Yeah, yep. I have a 308 <laughs> that I deer hunt with. I, you know, I, I hunt South Texas, but even with the Arroyos and all, you're talking 300 yards. It's got like a, a an upper end six six power fixed Simmons on it. Yeah, that, yep. And anybody says anything about that scope? I've killed so many deer with that gun. I exactly. I yeah, me too. I, I run deer. Simmons I out, and Pasco and Bushnell. So yeah. Yep. Yeah, for for an for an optic that you just zero once and you're going to be using it for your your close to medium ranges where you're not applying any significant holdover values, any your your over the counter Walmart hunting scope for seventy dollars is more than plenty because actually the glass has come a long ways in the last ten fifteen years. Mm-hmm. The stuff that's uh, you know fifty bucks now is beating the pants off the stuff that was five hundred bucks twenty years ago. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. So, that's that's true of so yeah, many things. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep, like cell phones. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Yeah. You know, compare the iPhone to the Motorola Razor, right? I mean, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the Razor wasn't a bad phone for its time. Um, let's get a little bit on ammo here, um, because I think that that's another thing that people lose sight of is that you know when you're doing this type of shooting, you're probably not if you really want to maximize it, grabbing, you know, green and yellow Remington core locks, though it's a fine hunting round, but now we're talking about a totally different world. Yeah. And especially in, when we define long range shooting, we'll just pick a a range here arbitrarily, just kind of based on what most people typically think, maybe like, let's say over 700 yards. Okay. Okay. Um, Once you get to those kind of distances, all of a sudden, your stuff really cumulatively adds up, like the imperfections in your bullet, uh, the lack of ballistic performance because of a low coefficient on the bullet, increased drag. All that stuff really cumulatively adds up, and that will cause you to have a lot of problems. So you want to maximize your external ballistic performance by having a bullet that actually is designed for long-range shooting. Um, and generally categorize bullets as to just and what they call the ballistic coefficient of the bullets. And the higher that value is, it's a number. You know, it's usually in decimal points like 0.530 or 0.391. That's going to be your coefficient. The higher that value is, it it, uh, summarizes your aerodynamic performance, if you have to put it in those terms. So uh, when you get into most of your modern centerfire rifles, for long-range shooting, it's good to have something at least in the middle 400s or higher. I prefer stuff in the 500s or, I mean, and the higher you can get, the better you're going to do because when you really plot how this stuff works out downrange, like that makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And there are certain calibers generally that do better than others that just mathematically work out like seven millimeters, um, 243s. There are certain calibers, uh, you know, um, your 260 calibers just mathematically work out in the marketed weight ranges of the bullets to where they have real high ballistic coefficients, generally speaking. So when you're shopping for a bullet, it's usually your boat tail bullets that are they have low drag. And so that's one thing to consider. The other thing, obviously, is what are you shooting at? If you're shooting targets, then you use target bullets. If you're hunting, then you've got to use a long-range hunting bullet, really, you know, unless you got a certain amount of mass. If you're shooting a 338 Lapua, all of a sudden you have a lot more... Uh, forgiveness lapua magnum you know sure because uh, you got more, more power there that you're that. bringing with you but i think that, <laughs> i think that there's the, the the truth is though that people really miss the, the 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 whole thing that you just talked about there how important ballistic coefficient is to the performance of a round as you go out to longer distances because what everybody thinks is i'll you know i'll, I'll go to the max load for this round you know and this powder combination and all and i'll get the distance okay. with, yep. with velocity and it doesn't work that way Improving your BC will do more to extend the range of your round than improving muzzle velocity by 50 feet per second by a long shot. Absolutely. And I, I kind of want to clarify because we do have a lot of different diversity in this audience. So terminology again, ballistic coefficient. The easiest okay. way to think about that, folks, is just the ability of an object to fly. A dart would have a relatively high ballistic coefficient. A cube would have a low one. So with bullets, the longer we get, heavy for caliber, longer dart-like bullets in general will have a higher ballistic coefficient. So if two rounds leave the muzzle, 
traveling at different speeds. One's in their same caliber, and one's traveling 100 feet per second faster than the other. If one has a relatively low ballistic coefficient and the other has a high ballistic coefficient, even if they're the same weight, by the time you're out to 500 y uh, meters, the advantage the one had has been lost to the other. And, and, and all you got to see that is pick up a dart and throw it and pick up a box and throw it and see how it performs, yeah, and that's it. Yep. So a higher ballistic coefficient will allow your bullet to actually retain its velocity for a longer period of time. And actually, in the long run, when you start getting far enough, your bullet that started off way slower that might have been way heavier of a bullet, for example, heavier bullets generally have a higher ballistic coefficient because mm -hmm. they have more momentum. So they're going to... Yep. For the same caliber, you have to have, there's no other way to get the mass in there than to make them longer. Yeah, absolutely, yep. So your higher BC bullets are going to be, you know, longer, heavier bullets in that caliber, and that's going to retain that velocity way better. So, for example, in a 243, a lot of guys think that if you get like a 55-grain bullet, now that's designed for varmint shooting applications at, you know, maybe 0 to 300 yards or whatever. Sure. Uh but, you know, if you're doing long-range target shooting, like I shoot two four feet out to, you know, 1,100, 1,200. We shot them out to 1,375. I think we did a video at 1,400 yards with those things. You'd be amazed what a little pipsqueak uh, 243 can do if you use the right bullets and if you know what you're doing. Uh, but we use the AMAX, 105-grain AMAX. That's right. starting off way slower than your 55-grain bullet. So it's starting off slower. So you'd think that that other 55-grain bullet would get there quicker because it's going faster. But no. That longer that that bullet that's twice as heavy is retaining the velocity it does have all throughout its flight path way better. So it's actually getting there way at range at a thousand yards. That 105 grain bullet now is beating that other bullet by a lot of it's having a lot more speed than that other one even. And that has to do with ballistic coefficient, and that is a function of weight to some degree as well. So there's an old hucksters game where you bet somebody you can throw a walnut over a house. And, of course, they try it a couple of times, and they can't throw it over the house. And you pick up a walnut, and you throw it over the house. Well, the way you win right. that game is you, you crack a walnut in half, stick a ball bearing in it, and glue the walnut back together. So if, right. if you think about it that way, the, the amount of force it takes to, to cover a certain distance with an object actually goes down as the weight goes up until it gets to a certain amount of weight where it then comes back down yep. to the other side of the curve. And, and I think that there's, like I said, there's a lot of people that – are new to shooting that are part of this audience as well, especially this like technical level shooting. And when you actually start to understand these things in these kind of layman's terms, it starts to get a lot more interesting because you realize you can walk into a gun store and hear a bunch of like two guys like you and me that do this, like rattle right. all this stuff off. And you feel like a person that has no interest in star Wars that walked into a Star Wars convention, right? <laughs> like, I don't care. And I, yeah, even if I, I don't cult. even know that I care because I don't know what they're saying. But when you start to realize it's just these basic physical laws, and that means you, sure. you can crack that code, then it becomes mentally challenging in a way that makes sense, and it's a lot more exciting. And, and again, I'm back to... And that's what I tried to accomplish with my tutorial series is I... Uh, presumed that whoever would start off with part one in the series, and I would strongly recommend that anyone who's curious about this stuff, because we could talk for like nine years straight on this and not even break through the skin of the topic. It's a very complex science. But if uh, you want to get more into it, the, the series I did, it, has, it starts off assuming you basically are a beginner. Like you're a typical, like a deer hunting type guy, and you don't maybe don't know, or, or maybe you're not even in the rifles at all. And so we start off and we define all these terms 
and we go through and we try to explain it in layman's terms, and then we build on that. So you got to watch them really in order. Cool. If you start off on part 40, because I think there's 89 of these videos up now, and we're still making them. So uh, Are they in like an individual uh, playlist or something like that? I Yeah, I, I'm really slow on the computer, believe it or not. Okay. Um, I'm figuring it out. Like when I started, I had no clue. But yeah, I did figure out where that playlist deal was. Okay. So someone told me about that. Yeah, so... They're all in a playlist, and right now they're titled, uh, I think, Sniper 101. Originally, they were long-range shooting 101, but that was too long. People couldn't see what their you know, the title was. So right now it's called Sniper 101. You type that in on Google or YouTube, and you'll find a million of them. Well, 89 of them right now. Well, cool. And uh, it, go, it walks you through in stupid level of detail. Some of those videos are like 45 minutes long. We get into chemistry. We get into uh, frictional dynamics in the bore. So for those people who are really into shooting already – I don't think they'll be bored when they get into it. And for people who are brand new beginners, it covers bases so they'll actually see, you know, what we're talking about. But I would strongly point people in that direction because, man, we could spin our wheels yeah. <laughs> for the rest of the conversation on ballistics for sure. Well, but yeah, the, bullets are important. For the show notes, I've already got a link to your channel itself, but I'll add a oh, link cool. to that to that specific uh, playlist, and I actually grabbed a screenshot of the Sniper 101 for the image today, and I'll link that instead of to the channel down to the playlist for those who want to follow that, so that'll be awesome. Um, but moving back to ammo a little bit before we close up here, um, do are you a big fan of then of, of hand-loading for, for total control, and if not, are there particular uh, manufacturers that you think are doing a good job of producing like a premium quality factory ammo or both? Yeah, you ask kind of a difficult question because <laughs> in all honesty, the level of shooting that someone is going to actually have to do in order to be successful at this uh, discipline is going to be like real high volume shooting. You're going to have to shoot a lot to actually figure this out. Uh, so with that in mind, you might, if you're not into reloading, you might want to get into it because it's going to get really, really, really expensive. Rifle shells ain't cheap anymore. They're like, what, $20 for a typical box of 20 rounds, like a dollar a piece if you buy yeah. them at the store. You can buy decent quality, long-range ready ammo, uh, but uh, you're going to have to get into your, like, for example, a box of what? What's a box of 308 shells now in the 168 grain Match Kings or whatever? I mean, they're expensive, like $35, $40 yeah. probably for a box of them things. So if you want to spend $40 for 20 rounds, you can. There is ammo available that works fine, like Federal makes good ammo, or Hornady makes some good ammo. It depends on what you're shooting. Um, you have to obviously, like, base uh, your ammo on your selection criteria for, like, what you're going to do with it. You know, you can buy hunting long-range ammo for long-range hunting. You buy target ammo for target shooting and tactical ammo for tactical applications. But, um, yeah, I would strongly recommend getting into reloading. It's really not that hard. That's even included in my 101 series on YouTube there. If you get to that point, uh, I give the basics, and it's really not that hard. Um, anyone can figure it out. You just, But I would very, very much caution people, you have to follow the book verbatim when yeah. you get into reloading because you will blow yourself up if you, <laughs> if you do something wrong. I mean, yeah. so that's – if you have any kind of degree of discipline and attention to detail, you have to apply that fully when you're reloading. You can't have friends over distracting you where you're doing it. You can't have kids running around. you got to put yourself in a peaceful place, lock the door, and concentrate to do it correctly uh, because it's potentially hazardous if you do something wrong, especially with high-pressure rifles or rifle loads, you know what I mean? So, yeah, but, yeah, reloading is, like, highly recommended for sure. And, and I would and just to give an idea, like a 338 Lapua Magnum, like that's one of my – cartridges that I shoot a lot. 
I've never bought a box of ammo loaded for that stuff because it's like $120 for 20 rounds. Yeah, yeah. If you want to get decent ammo. And I can load these babies. After I purchased the brass, just reload the brass, you know, um, for like 60 cents a piece after I invested in the brass. The brass is a little expensive, two bucks a piece for the brass. So, but it's way cheaper, even on the onset, even with the initial investment, it's, you'll come out maybe even on the initial investment to get all the equipment and the brass. But once you do your first reload, all of a sudden it's like fractions of the price. And if you know what you're doing and you're careful, and like we said, you can get way better quality ammo than you can, you have your own quality control. So you can determine how good you want it to be or, or not. Well, there's, you know, you're, you can basically very easily start loading custom loads for an individual rifle by doing a next size That's for the true. brass is fire formed. And I, I think that we could go all the way down into an hour of discussion of reloading if we're not careful here. But what, I, what I'd like to say is a lot of people look at the cost and think it's really expensive. I've spent quite a bit of money on reloading gear over the years, and I've bought stuff from Hordney and Lyman and, 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 and Lee. And I have to say, Lee is like the lowest cost stuff there is. And everything except their powder measuring tools, I think, is as good (laughs) as anything else on the market. I hate their powder. Now, you can sit there and and hand load with the little hand press or the little hammer one on a shelf using their dippers and all. And they're a fixed cavity. They can't be messed up. Limit your flex. That's fine. But I'm talking about, like, their perfect powder measure and stuff like that. I ended up getting the Lyman powder measures where it's got the little pan and you dial in the grains and it measures it and turns itself off and absolutely gives you the same powder charge and weight every single time. And I love that thing. But everything else I use regularly is low cost stuff from, from Lee reloading. And I can't say that a Hornady press and dies does any better of a job for me than that stuff. Yeah. And, and another confession too, is a lot of folks are surprised with what we do with our rifles up here. <laughs> uh, to see like what kind of equipment we got when it comes to reloading, because I've been using, I think I inherited it from uh, my father-in-law, an old Lee. What is the single stage, the cheap one, like the twenty-dollar single yeah. stage press, and it works. It's it's not mechanically that intricate. It's just a, a press, you know. <laughs> and so you can get into this for like you can get all the stuff for a hundred bucks, and like you said, you can get a better quality scale or a powder measure. And uh, if, if you guys are confused on that, I'm sure there's uh, lots of other channels, too, like Ammo Smith, I think, is a really good guy if you want to get into the details on reloading. Or uh, I do just the real basic stuff and and uh, try to teach you some of the things to watch out for that will be good for long-range applications for getting real precise loads. But uh, reloading is not hard, and it's not expensive to get into. If you want to be a, a tackleberry and, and buy the most expensive stuff possible, sure, you can get cuckoo over you know priced they have like a like you don't need a progressive loader those are slick and they're real nice for high volume reloading but you don't need that fancy stuff i've been using real cheap stuff for a long time because it's really not on the equipment it's on your ability to to pay attention to what you're doing that's that's the factor and that's really the factor too with the equipment in general with long-range shooting is a lot of people are equipment based Mm-hmm. And like I said before, if you have a, a rifle that's in decent mechanical condition, you don't need to do any kind of trigger upgrade. I mean, my first rifle that I really got into this with when I was a kid was an old 03 Springfield military bolt action. It had <laughs> what most target shooters would consider to be a terrible trigger, but I learned to use it. And it's not terrible if you know how to use it. 
Correct. So you don't need all this fancy stuff. You don't need to have it. I, I mean, it was just bone stock, basically. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I that do. thing was amazing. It was an amazing shooting rifle, you know. And like I said before, some of my three hundred dollar rifles outshoot some of my multi thousand dollar rifles. So it's not on the equipment. And a lot of people try to make up for that. Maybe a lack of training or a lack of practice especially people who are newcomers into it really like to jump on the most expensive like rifle right away you don't need that kind of stuff if you want it to look tactical spray paint or something or put a, <laughs> a sticker on there of a skull or i don't know what these guys are what what they want i don't know yeah. what they're looking for because a standard hunting rifle if it's mechanically sound and i would say if you can get like at 100 yards a group of under an inch consistently that's the thing you don't want to just shoot five groups you know in try to get one but if he can consistently keep it under an inch at 100 yards that rifle will shoot 10 inches theoretically at a thousand yeah so you're going to be totally fine with a standard over-the-counter hunting rifle if you have decent ammo and if you have an optic that'll work and if you uh just pay attention to the discipline because it's really on you the shooter is like 90 percent of long-range shooting the equipment a, g- a good long-range shooter can take anyone's rifle Assuming the scope has the ability to be, uh, you know, to stay on track and do pretty much anything with that rifle out to the maximum effective range of a cartridge. You know what I'm saying? I do. I do. And I think so. It's you made a good point there when you mentioned your your old Springfield. I have an old 1917 Enfield, not the British version, the American version in 3006 that I yep, got the big old ugly. Yeah, yeah. I, but somebody somebody actually did a pretty good sporterizing job. If I got a new one in my hands today, I wouldn't do so, but it was already done. Um, right. Really nice hand checkered stock. I think I picked it up for 250 bucks. It's got a crappy Tasco scope on it, and the only reason I haven't pulled it off yet is the guy drilled and tapped his own uh, holes in the receiver, and it's almost not worth it until that scope goes out to fix it because it's the, the, the rings are so far apart. It's like the only scope I've ever found. This is like a, a 70s model Tasco that still shoots that will fit into the rings without them being too spaced apart. And that gun will shoot your thumbnail off at 100 yards with Remington yep. cheap the cheapest Remington Corlock 180 <laughs> grains you can get, and it's got what you talked about. It's got that that military old school military trigger, that long. All yeah, like, people underestimate the capabilities of military rifles all the time, or anything. And in all honesty, rifles are way more accurate. They have way more potential of accuracy than most people know, and. I've heard so many people say, oh, my rifle's broke or it needs this or something's wrong with it. It's not shooting good. And there very well could be something wrong. A lot of times you have a loose action screw. But if you got everything screwed together tight and the rifle's not damaged somehow, yeah, that thing is going to shoot way better than most of us can shoot. In all you're honesty, not sitting there with a $49 scope with the reticle flipping around in it or something like that. Yeah, yeah fine, you, don't want, right? you don't want to go cheap on that part. Yeah, you want to spend as much, the old saying is spend as much on the scope at least as much as he did on the rifle. And I guess, I guess to get back on uh, one, one of your first questions is I, I get a little long-winded. I get enthusiastic. <laughs> but uh, for a recommendation, I'll just straight up, if you're wanting to get into long-range shooting, take whatever rifle you got in your closet, make sure, I mean, and you'll know when you take it on the range after you refine your marksmanship if it's going to shoot straight or not. But if it can shoot minute of angle, you know, insured less at 100 yards, it's totally adequate. Mount an SWFA. SS10 power scope, just a straight super sniper. 
Uh, I would recommend uh, the mill, the mill irradiant, the mill uh, turrets, so that it matches the reticle. That's a nice feature, and you'll get into the long range or the Sniper 101 series. We'll explain all the scope criteria. But if you get that piece of equipment, any rifle you got with the correct ammo for that rifle, mind you, you know, for the for the twist rate, that's something you want to be aware of when you're selecting your ammo. But any twist will work. You just got to match the ammo to it. Um, and then you get a scope like that, and you're, you're set up. But I would do a straight 10 power. If, if you don't want to spend $299 or whatever they cost, maybe they're 330 now, you can get, uh, I think they're called the, was it the Bushnell Elite? Mm-hmm. And they're like they used they used to be 199 bucks. I don't know. Maybe they went up within the, they're like the dollars dissolving as we speak. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and that thing works fine too. Um, I wouldn't use it for life and death type stuff. But that SWFA one for 299, a straight 10 power scope. That thing is actually that'll work for tactical applications. That was actually made for the U.S. Navy as a Navy contract scope, so it's plenty rugged. Um, and that's only 300 bucks. So whatever rifle cool. you got plus that scope, you're set. Just use the right ammo and then learn the fundamentals and learn what you're doing with it. And there ain't no reason that thing shouldn't be able to go beyond a thousand or whatever the, whatever the max range capability of the cartridge is. And, and also, I'll add something to your, your criteria of a minute of angle uh, shooter at a hundred yards that may bend a person's nose or two. But if you have three or four decent rifles with decent glass on them and none of them shoot minute of angle, the odds are that you don't shoot minute of angle. So, like, I've had this gun, you know, this gun throws screwy groups or whatever, and you you throw it down on a bench and and, and drop five shots off, and it's, you know, a quarter to 50 (laughs) cent size, and you're like, oh, it doesn't work for me. And it's it's always, you have to be ginger with people with that, because you don't want to say, well, you can't Yeah, it's just a lack of of experience with there's There's a lot of little things that people do um, that really throw them off, and I'm trying to get into the... Maybe I'll do a video just on that, the top 10 mistakes I see shooters make trying to shoot right. I'll I'll tell you uh, one thing to include is the shooter that's always shot mostly offhand all his life and takes some hot 306 loads and sits down on a bench after about the third shot of getting his shoulder beat to hell because it's a totally different way that you set up to absorb recoil. Whether they know it or not, they are flinching. Even if they're technically a good shot, they're not executing to their ability. And I, I don't know how many like different little drills and stuff you come up with, but my favorite drill working with people and having people because we're all we all need to be doing drills. We all fall from our capability at times. Is you have somebody stand behind the person, they load the rifle, they hand you the rifle, you take a shot over and over. Every once in a while, don't put around in the rifle, and the shooter will see their flinch. And it will tighten yep. them up so quickly because they have no idea they're flinching because there's blast and recoil and whatever. And when you're shooting a, a two two three with a with a recoil dampener and all, you see you're flinching. But when you're shooting a heavier caliber, yep. you don't see that you jerked. It, I've seen it with shotgunners too, shooting skeet. You know, you're, you tell a guy you're picking your head up off off the barrel is what we. Yep. And no, I'm not. No, I'm not. And you do that same drill, and the first time they they they, they pull the trigger on a clay and the gun doesn't go off and their, their head's an inch up looking for the clay to break. Then you, you just hand them the gun back and start, and they start just dusting everything. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's so yeah, and, and one thing right? to point out too, is a, a lot of people get offended if you tell them they're flinching, but the truth is I flinch, you flinch, everyone yes! flinches. It's, it's biologically impossible not to flinch when you have an explosion right next to your face go off and the <laughs> thing hits you. 
you're going to flinch. It's a matter of flinching after the bullet's gone. And the way you mitigate that problem is practicing what they call the four fundamentals of marksmanship, which I did. That's an excellent video for folks who just want to maybe, who are having problems, like if they suspect maybe something's going on. Uh, when no one's looking, go and watch that video so that you don't, you know, we don't want our pride hurt or nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but no, see, I know how guys are because I am one. You know what I mean? Yeah. But go and check that out. Just It's just a reminder. And it goes through some of the idiosyncrasies and some of the things people don't think of. But if you're following through and, and you're squeezing the trigger to a degree to where it's almost kind of a surprise when it goes off. And uh, like what I do mentally when, I, when I'm laying down, I know, I know I'm going to get hit with this 338 in my shoulder and I'm laying down prone with a T-shirt on. And that's a little bit of recoil. It's uncomfortable, and I don't like it. But I convince myself psychologically when I'm laying there, okay, I'm just going to snap the trigger on a on a snap cap. It's just click. You know, that's what's yeah. going to happen. But in reality, I know it's actually going to shoot. You know what I mean? Yep. And so I convince my body that it's going to – and by the time the rifle goes bang, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm surprised that it went off. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe that, that works for me. Maybe there's another technique. But if you're squeezing the trigger slow – and carefully, and you're executing those uh, principles correctly, you're going to flinch after the bullet's gone. That's yeah. the objective. Because everyone's going to flinch. You, you know, we, we need to wrap uh, now, I, I do want to kind of add to that a little bit. You talked about the military triggers with the long pull. That's why I actually like them, because they yep. let you get into this mode. And what happens is they call it creep. But it's not really creep, because there's a point where that trigger becomes just as crisp as anything else, and you're right up against it, and you can come back to that point and hesitate there. And and I think one of the biggest things that causes flinching and jerking is I'm going to shoot now, like that kind of thing in the head, where it's just I'm on the target. It doesn't matter when, boom, right? And when it's like that, then like you're saying, the gun just sort of – I don't want to say it the wrong way where somebody thinks it's not safe, you know, but the gun just sort of goes off in your hands, but under your control at the same time. And that way, yep. you've done as little to affect the gun prior to the shot as possible as a human being. Yep, yeah. It, it's a lot different than some folks learned on a shotgun. And a shotgun, you kind of do pull the trigger because you yep. got a certain time frame. Or even for long-range applications, there are certain things where you might need to make a snapshot because if you're shooting at a moving target and you're, uh, yep. you know, you got a calculated lead, then you got to execute that. But there's proper ways of doing it. But, yeah, for any folks who are curious on that, watch the series. And there's I forget, it's one of the la- later parts, but it's the Fundamentals of Marksmanship video in that playlist. And it goes through, a, it's just be kind of shown on the range what not to do and things to, to watch out for when you're when you're shooting. But any rifle should be able to shoot totally fine. Just for an so old army guy, when you properly, see, just for an old army guy, when you keep saying the four fundamentals, are you saying breathe, aim, relax, squeeze? Yep. Okay. All right. I yep. didn't know if you yep. that's, that's what I'm referring to, yep. lot, but but yeah, I just keep hearing that. I yeah, remember BRM, basic rifle management. Yep. I remember calling that <laughs> cadence when, you know 25 years ago. Uh, but anyway, yep. uh, cool man. I really enjoyed you being on the air with us today. Um, you want to just again uh, remind people like everything you have is like on YouTube, right? Yeah, I unfortunately I don't have any of the other internet. Uh, uh, what do you call them? Personalities out there, or whatever the clones Websites on, on the or computer. The, the only place I have is the YouTube, and I have the series. The easiest thing to remember is probably if you type in Sniper 101, it'll take me to my channel. It's T Borosaurus Rex. That's the name of the channel on YouTube, and uh, or Rex Reviews is the name of the show. Really, is what it's be- evolving into a whole review show. 
and I do lots of equipment equipment reviews, and we talk about all kinds of stuff, and we have a lot of fun on there too. Uh, but yep, that's the best way to find me. I don't have a Facebook yet, and I don't have a Twitter or a MySpace.com or a MySpace or a, I don't. <laughs> I don't have a MySpace either. I, uh, but like, just so like the people that like what you're doing, if they wanted to support you in any way, is your channel monetized in any way, like with ads, or is there any way? Well, you know, yeah. You? Go, if, if you just watch, and, and I, to be all honest, like I, I don't ask for money because I'm just doing it because it's fun, and I like helping folks with the the craft, the hobby, and also, I mean, I see it as a civil duty to help folks become more equipped with whatever they have, just for you know, obvious second amendment type reasons. So that's the reason I do it. But I, there, there is a donate button on the channel because I got sick last year. Uh, and there's a lot of folks who are trying to offer to send me money and I don't like people sending envelopes to my house and stuff. So I thought sure. I just do a PayPal account and that's right on that, uh, the main page of the channel page, little tiny button, uh, donate if you feel absolutely compelled that, uh, maybe you were so impressed with whatever magic you learned or whatever that you can do that. But yeah, well, Rex, man, I appreciate you being with us today. Hey, thank, it was really fun uh, having a good visit. If you ever want to visit about anything else, uh, don't be shy to give me a holler and we'll uh, line something up. Cool. We'd be happy to have you back. And, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Rex Tibor, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There I was, back in the wild again And I fell right at home, where I belong I had that feeling, coming over me again Just like it happened so many times before Is like an old good friend Makes me feel warm and good inside And I knew his name And it was good to see him again Cause in the wind he's still alive Old Red Bear Walk with me Down the trails again Take me
you go up that ridge. Now go down in the swamp. Go get that bucket. If some of our teenage thrill seekers really want to go out and get a thrill, let them go up into the northwest and tangle with the grizzly bear, the polar bear, and the brown bear. They'll get this effect. It will cleanse the soul.